also first to welcome those who've been in the other room receiving uh, meditation instruction to welcome you here. Uh, my name is Gina, for those of you whom I've not met. So we have a few announcements. Uh, first, to know that uh, you are so welcome to be part of this community. We are, um, we at New York Insight are very much interested in the creation of what we call a beloved community and just plain old community too. That the minute you walk in our doors, we consider you part of our community, even if it's your very first time and even if you intend never to return, we still consider you part of our community because you've walked through our doors. So we hope that you will feel that sense of being at home here, that you will feel a sense of belonging because when we practice uh, in this way together, when we practice Dharma, meditation especially, we are really uh, paying homage to all what we call the three jewels of Buddhism, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the Buddha, the historical Buddha, as well as the Buddha within each of us, that there is a mind and heart that is completely capable of awakening as the Buddha was a man, a human being, so too we as human beings have this possibility and potential to awaken. We are paying homage to the Dharma, to the teachings that have been preserved for these 2,600 years. And uh, we are quite fortunate to be in the stream of those who have heard these beautiful, valuable, precious teachings for these 2,600 years. And we're paying homage to the Sangha, all of the beings in the whole stream of this 2,600 years who have heard these teachings, done whatever they could to preserve them, and have practiced according to these teachings. So we can, as we sit here, as I said at the beginning of the session, as we sit here in the center of the world, we are also sitting in this 2,600-year-old stream. And all of, our most, all of our offerings here at New York Insight are uh, in keeping with the mission that we have to bring the Dharma to New York Insight and to create this peaceful refuge that you feel welcomed always to come to and practice. So we have many offerings and there's, I think, a flyer like this outside that you can pick up on your way out if you're interested in other events here. So uh, we are happy to say that there are a few things that if you, you're interested you might want to look into. 
we have a, a course that's, that's starting on Wednesdays, starting this Wednesday, taught by Nancy Glim, one of our teachers who has been with New York Insight almost from the beginning, who's a beautiful teacher. And she'll, she's offering a course called Now What? How to Bring Your Practice into Life. And essentially is especially helpful for people who are um, starting out on the, on the path who may have taken a, a beginner's course or a beginner, beginner's class. But it's also um, a beautiful reflection on the integration of, of, of this practice into life. Because much of the time, sometimes when we do this practice, we, we kind of think that you know, it's on the cushion and then when we get up, we're just in our, what we call daily life. But actually the practice is, is very much meant to be integrated into every moment of our lives. We train the mind and we train the heart to, uh, to be present, to be completely present for our whole lives from moment to moment to moment. And that is, and the path is a path of uh, not only meditation, but of wisdom and integrity. So to be, to, to come to a class in which we really reflect on this might be helpful to you. And they're all of our usual uh, sitting groups, etc. I'll be here again on uh, this coming Sunday to, um, for, to do what we call a sitting on Sunday, which I do at, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And there are uh, numerous other offerings that um, might interest you. So please feel free to pick up this, um, this flyer. And there's a, a, a little fancier one if you like that kind of thing. I'd like to thank our, um, our volunteers, Carol and Cheryl. Where are you? Where are they? They're outside, they've left probably. No, I'm joking. Um, hi, there you are. Thank you for, for your practice and for your, um, for your generosity and offering to come and help us uh, put these e evenings like this together. We, New York Insight runs essentially on um, mostly on the, uh, the, the generosity and service of people like Cheryl and Carol who offer their time and their talents to uh, help sustain New York Insight as this beautiful uh, refuge. We are in this 2600 year old tradition. We, uh, as you know, we don't ask for a fee for these sittings. Uh, but we rely on your your generosity, and the, you know the, it's it's kind of countercultural that we do that. It would be like uh, going into a store and buying a dress and saying, "How much does this cost?" And the salesperson says, "Well, what do you think? You know, give us what you think, and trust you to understand the value of it and the quality of it, and to." Um, to maybe offer something that is uh, commensurate with the value you find in it. And so we, we, uh, we don't charge, as I said, but we rely on 
that open heart and that you will be touched by this practice and that you will find the practice worthy of your support. Uh, that your practice will include, as I said, not just sitting on a cushion, but actually walking an, an entire path, which includes the practice of opening the heart to the spirit of generosity. And so we hope that when you leave here on your way out, you will leave a donation in the, in the box that will reflect many things. It will reflect perhaps your, um, your gratitude for having encountered this practice. And perhaps it will, uh, it will reflect your being moved to support the center and the teachers uh, because we not only teach you, but we teach lots of other people who come uh, through the doors. And so part of what happens when you donate to New York Insight is that you're really supporting the practice of everyone who comes here. It's not in the same way that we, um, uh, that our economy runs, which is essentially on a, on a theory of exchange, that I give you something and there's a certain value and so, and so I ask that and you pay it. But more that there is a kind of flow of uh, generous giving from New York Insight, from the teachers, from the volunteers, that, that we're all swimming together in a, an ocean of generosity and that that generosity and that kind of giving infects the whole world. That is the hope. So please consider um, supporting us, not only by giving donations when you come here, but even maybe considering becoming a member of New York Insight. Um, we're really, uh, pleased that we, that there are many people who come. We even have members sometimes who don't come to New York Insight, but are so um, happy to support the, uh, even just the idea that there are people coming here, sitting together and listening to these teachings. So of course, we're very appreciative of uh, whatever you can offer and uh, please find joy in it, just as we find joy in giving to you. We find it to be a, a totally mutual um, affair and hope that you find joy just as we find joy in receiving and in offering uh, the teachings. So thank you. So on these evenings, uh, I like to offer the evening as a, um, an evening of inquiry where we write a Dharma talk together and we build it, the reflection on the Dharma, we build according to uh, your questions. And sometimes we don't even have answers, we just have reflection. So we'll see how it develops. I'd like to read to you just, I mentioned at the beginning about equanimity. And I encountered this very, very short story today that I, I had known from many years ago and hadn't really seen it in a while. But I remembered how delightful it was for me to hear it for the first time. So if you've heard it, if you're hearing it for the first time, I hope 
you also find it delightful. And if you're hearing it for, you know, if you've heard it before, I'm sure you'll still find it delightful. So this is a small piece by Richard Seltzer, who's a doctor, um, and it's from something called Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. <coughs> I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It is kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. <clears throat> so if you have any questions or comments, I'm happy to hear them. Is Buddhism regarded as a philosophy or a religion or both? So what is your definition of religion and what is your definition of philosophy? Um, I guess philosophy to me is the teachings of the way you can live your life and walk in the world with comfort and religion is praying to a deity. And why do you ask the question? I asked the question because years ago I went with a friend to her Buddhist temple and there was, there were people there that seemed to be praying to the Buddha and also offering gifts of money and fruit and flowers. So that's quite different from 
what I thought Buddhism was. Mm. Which would you prefer? <laughs> I prefer to think of it as a philosophy of living my life. Mm -hmm. And is that good enough for you? Yes. And does the, um, does the idea that it may be a religion in some part of the world bother you? No, but I don't understand how it's both. You don't understand how it's both, so that's the, that's the genesis of your question. Right. Hmm. So, is it possible for something to be, for it to be both and, rather than both but? Um, I suppose, yes. Mm -hmm. Sabine, is there a problem with my mic? Okay. So I'm not trying to avoid your question. I'm just trying to understand it. Um, what country were you in when? Oh, I was in New York City. I was in Chinatown. Oh, OK. <laughs> so I don't have that excuse, right? So, you know, as a result of uh, being a practitioner that really started, I started here in this country. I didn't start in Asia. I went to um, some of the Asian countries to practice. And so, and what was beautiful about going there to practice is that one is steeped in the culture although it, it's even hard to say that. I was going to say the culture where the Buddha started, but of course, Asia is not a monolithic place. It has many different cultures and many different stratas of practice and many different um, uh, schools of practice. You know, and, and if, if you've studied uh, just the, the history of Buddhism, you'll know that it's traveled all across, it, in the beginning, it traveled all across Asia and took on the, um, the cultural trappings of the religions of, those, of the country as it, as it moved into um, uh, India and China and Japan and then the, the Southeastern, the South Asian, the Southeastern and the South Asian uh, countries. And when I traveled to places like um, Tibet uh, and went to monasteries and different places to practice, uh, obviously at that time, maybe not so obvious, but at that time, uh, the Chinese had already taken over Tibet. And um, so m many of the practices had disappeared and yet, uh, when one went to a monastery or a nunnery, the practices were still really strong. And, and of course, one could notice that those practices were informed not only by Buddhism, but also informed by what was known as the Bon religion in Tibet, that when Buddhism went to, from China to Tibet, 
it, um, it took on the, uh, some of the aspects of, of Bonn, just as when it moved to China, it took on some of the aspects of Taoism and Confucianism. And when it moved to Japan, it took on some of the aspects of the Shinto religion. Uh, so you see where I'm going. So uh, going to Burma, which is the, the, uh, the country that's really the root of the practices that I was raised in, I was really quite surprised to see that um, in the monastery that I was practicing, it was quite secluded and beautiful up on the hill where, where we practiced. And down below, there was a whole community going on in the monastery itself where people would come and offer food and they would congregate. And one of the, one of the hardest parts of that as a, as a yogi there is that the, the tradition was that people would be so, so joyous and joyful to offer food to us because we were meditating and practicing that the custom was that if you were a, a patron in the sense that you offered a meal or you gave money f to the monastery or um, offered support in some way, that you could always come to the dining room at the time that we as yogis were, were practicing and watch us eat. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what, what that was, was that it was a very joyous thing to watch people eat who were actually eating as a result of their support and they understood that that support was carrying on the Dharma because we were practicing. But what I also realized was that part of the manifestation of the, the practice of the monastery was that it was like the center of the, of the community and many people in the community, in the particular village that we were in, in the monastery, uh, that some, our support, some of us as Westerners who went there and we saw that they needed schools or they needed hospitals. As a matter of fact, when I went to Burma to practice, I was given these, you know, like 25 pounds of medical books to carry because in the hospitals they didn't have texts that the doctors could rely on. And so I, I lugged these 25 pounds of books all over Burma in these tiny little planes and sometimes they didn't even want to let me on the plane because they said it was too heavy. And so th the village would depend upon the monks and the generosity of people who were supporting the monastery to help with education and medical supplies and medical services and, and all of that. And, and of course then they would come to the monastery and make their offerings, right? Whether it was food or they would put money in a bowl that was on the altar. And it was quite beautiful uh, that here we were uh, human beings recognizing completely our interdependence 
And I think that was a religious experience. So that, and then there were places in Burma where the monks were not meditators. They were part of a monastery, but meditation was not their thing. And so some of them did social work and some of them didn't do anything other than hang around the monastery because they had been brought to the monastery when they were six or seven or 10 or 11 or 13 years old and left there to, to be trained as, as monks because that was the one thing that could be done. So that's why I asked the question of what the genesis of your question is because there's so many different ways that we can look at religion, so many different ways we can look at philosophy, so many different ways we can all hear exactly the same words and the same teachings and interpret them differently and live differently according to what we um, uniquely hear as unique human beings. And I was just telling someone today, actually, who is uh, a mentee of mine, who wanted to, he said he wanted to learn how to be a, an inspirational teacher. And my advice to him was to listen to some of the evangelical preachers, right? Because some of them are, I've, I listen to them sometimes because I really want to understand how people attract thousands of people in a, in, a, um, in a stadium to hear the gospel. What is it that brings them? What is it that inspires them to come and listen? And actually, I've been very impressed with the evangelical preachers and their the way in which they weave their sermons and their teachings and the way in which they understand many, deeply, some of them, the, um, the workings of the human heart and the way in which uh, each human heart, you know, that the, the, the as, as Solzhenitsyn said, the, the Russian writer said, you know, that the, the, the currents of good and evil run through every single human heart. So my short answer is that, <laughs> which is a very long answer, I know, um, is to really see for yourself, which is what the Buddha advised, what is valuable to you and leave the rest. Um, if you're the kind of person that benefits from ritual and from um, a, a particular way of practice, go for it. If you're a person that says, no, 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 religion's not my thing, I, you know, I'm, I'm a refugee. Many people who come to Buddhism are refugees from religion, right? That's okay too. So you take what is valuable and you leave the rest and, and, and of course, deeply respect uh, what the needs of others and what they, what they need to get. Um, that's, that's it. Is that good enough for you? Yes, thank you. You're welcome.
I can't see, and that, so I may know you, and not yet I. Okay. No, I don't think you've seen me before. Okay. So my question is, it's not actually a question; it's a question for advice. So the husband in your story is devoted to his wife, and the to me, what happens there is an accident. Is nothing she did to herself, and so. I can say for myself, I find it hard to be devoted to someone when they have caused injury to themselves, including sometimes my own self. What's your advice um, in maintaining devotion even when someone's inflicted injury to themselves? Is this a theoretical question, or is no. this? No, it's, no, it's a real question, a real, life, real life question. It's a real life question. Yes. Is, it, is it something that you're in right now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it psychological harm or physical harm? Uh, physical. Mm-hmm. Health-related. Sorry? Health-related. Health-related. So what do you think you need? Um, to feel compassion. It's a good question. I know it's a good yeah, it's a great <laughs> question. It's a great question. I don't know how to answer. Good. What do you think compassion is? To me, compassion is like getting the what-so of things. The what? The what-so-ness of things. What does that mean? Like how it is, however it is, without judgment, and just letting it be. Mm. That's what compassion is for me. Mm, That's more equanimity. So I'll give you the classical um, teaching on compassion, which is, uh, it's it's quite short actually, it's that you you see suffering Mm -hmm. and that you wish for that suffering to end, whether it's your own suffering or the suffering of another. That's it, you wish for it to end. And it's, and it's, how does that feel when I say that? Oh, so that sounds very easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you said it's a wish for it to end. Yeah. Like there's nothing, like I wish for it to end. Yeah, and in the classical teachings, um, uh, the, the, the compassion is one of the four divine abodes. It's a long story, so I won't go into it. But it's, it's what the Buddha says is uh, these qualities of heart and mind are uh, that if developed and cultivated and nurtured and manifesting in your life and in your heart, that essentially um, it's a way of living in heaven on this earth. Right? It's, a, it's a heavenly abode. And their loving kindness and compassion and uh, appreciative joy, that's joy for the joy of another, where 
and, and uh, equanimity. And in that teaching of the, what's called the Brahma Viharas, uh, there's always a teaching of uh, what are called far enemies and near enemies of these four qualities of heart and mind. And the, the far enemy is like the opposite of the quality. So loving kindness, the far enemy would be hatred. But the near enemy is uh, a quality that masquerades, that looks kind of, sort of like it, but it's not really it. So the near enemy of loving kindness, for instance, would be attachment. It's love, but it's not, it's not universal love, which is what loving kindness is or loving friendliness. It's, it's a kind of attached love. And with compassion, the far enemy is cruelty, right? Where you don't care about somebody's suffering. And the near enemy is pity, P-I-T-Y, pity. Because it, kind of, it kind of looks like compassion, but actually the quality that's missing in it is that understanding or that wisdom that knows that suffering is universal. That your suffering is not different from my suffering. It may manifest differently, it may look different, but actually underneath it all, the, human, the suffering of the human being or of any living creature actually is, uh, is suffering that we can know and when we know it, when we see it, we have this wish. Compassion is understanding it, understanding that, how we are all subject to, to suffering. And knowing that suffering is, even though it's a universal and impersonal quality, it manifests uniquely and personally for each of us in different ways, depending on many, many, many causes and conditions, right? And not only causes and conditions that come from us, but that join with other causes and conditions of all of the other human beings on this earth. That's how we're interconnected, is that our thoughts, our decisions, our actions are all manifesting in the world and, and connecting with all of the thoughts and decisions and actions of all of the other beings and we're creating this world together. We're co-creators of this earth and this universe and we're all connected in it. We're all dependent on each other. No matter how independent we think we are or how unique we are, we are totally interdependent and connected. And so when we see suffering, we understand it deeply and that, that understanding is what yields compassion and makes it different from pity, right? So there are two very different attitudes. So we don't feel sorry for somebody because we think of them as a victim but we feel compassionate for them because we understand what it's like to suffer. So what do you think you need for compassion? And let me say for a compassionate heart rather than for compassion for this particular person because compassion for a particular person arises from a heart of compassion that really understands this universal suffering. Sounds like, I feel like this question is gonna make me cry. 
Well, please feel free. So sometimes it's very hard for me to see people suffer. Yeah. And so one of the things the things that I take on taken on doing in the past few years was that I separate separate myself from people. Mm. What do you need for compassion? For the compassionate heart, which it feels to me as if you already have. But sometimes it's masked because the pain of it can feel overwhelming. And so instead of allowing ourselves to feel it, we push it away, we stuff it down, we suppress it, we deny it, we avoid it, we, we don't want to feel that pain. Sorry? I said I do feel deeply for people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just past few years I feel like I'm getting I have less fewer and fewer friends. Mm-hmm. And I'm leaving my house less. Mm-hmm. And the people that know me like I don't know if they would necessarily say like you know that's the thing that I was that was happening to me but I can I almost feel like like I'm just waiting for death because hmm. I'm like oh why what does that feel like Numbness. Mm. So, you know, in so many ways, the practice that we do is the counterbalance of that. First, you can have some compassion for yourself and how difficult it is to encounter the pain of, of life, the pain of being a human being and how much we don't want to feel it and how much we want it to really go away. But what we have when we practice is an understanding, is a, is a really deep wisdom that knows that it's the, the, the pushing away and the struggle and the resistance to the, to the depth of feeling in some ways is more painful and feeling the feeling itself, right? And so, so much of our practice is reawakening to that, is remembering and training the mind and heart to be able to, to sit, as I said in the beginning of the, the session, to sit in the center of the world with 
its joys and its sorrows, its vicissitudes, its, its worldly winds, as the Buddha called them, pain and, pain and pleasure, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, to be able to sit in the center of the, in the, of the world, which that's how the world moves, yes? We, we get joy, we get sorrow. And, and much as we would like it if we only got joy and gain and pleasure and fame and praise, but it's not how it rolls, right? That's not how it rolls. It really, we get the other side of the balance sheet. And how do we sit with balance and still are able to act in the middle of all of that? That's, that's the kernel of our practice. That's why I love the teaching on equanimity so much. Because that's really our practice. And every time you bring your attention back to your breath, or to what is happening right now, and you do it without judgment, and you do it with some degree of acceptance, even if it may be painful in the beginning to do that. That's what we're training the heart to do. And so this, these practices, the practice of compassion, or equanimity, or joy, or loving kindness, it's not that you hear the teaching and you say, okay, that's it, I'm now compassionate. Good luck with that. Right? Because the next person you see, oh, you know, you, you, you feel the cruelty or you feel, uh, he hurt himself or she hurt herself. I don't have any pity or compassion for that. But slowly, slowly, as we practice and as we, as we begin to feel what it's like to be able to sit with a painful back or a painful knee or a painful memory, or a painful feeling or a painful emotion and be able to sit in the center of it. And not, it's not that we pretend it's not painful, we feel it, but we, we get the tools, we understand how to begin to tiptoe into that pain. The heart opens, it's no longer defended and uh, hard. There's a, there's a fluidity that begins to happen and a softness from which we can act. Thank you. You're welcome. She's bringing the... Thank you. Uh, I guess my question is also about compassion, and mm. it's something I've been contemplating lately. Um, I guess, um, does compassion by definition come with... Could I you move, could you bring... Sure. It? I guess, does compassion by definition come with a sense of feeling and emotion, or I guess it's just a, this kind of universal understanding that you're talking about, is that, is that compassion alone? What do you mean by is it, does it come with feeling? Um, can you be compassionate about a person or their situation, um, 
I guess, and at the same time, not really have strong feelings of sadness or emotion, you know, around it. Um, I guess I can, just as an example, um, there's a few people in my life, there's a few people in my life that have been ill, and, um, you know, I guess I've spent quite some time with them and um, thinking about them and um, trying to help them in every way I can, uh, but at the same time, I don't, I don't have a strong sense of feeling around it. Um, I, I feel like I understand their situation and I wish it would be better and uh, I do everything that I think I can but I guess it bothers me that when I go home at night I don't um, I, I guess I don't feel sad or I don't um, you know I, I don't I don't feel awful about it uh, I guess I'm kind of feel a bit dispassionate about it and it kind of creates a situation where I feel like I'm a good friend or family member but also you know, maybe an awful person at the, at the same time. An awful person, is that what you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you want to feel something and you're not feeling it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if I want to feel something. I'm just, ah. I guess I just, <laughs> I guess I'm just kind of surprised I don't, knowing how much I guess I do care and how much I am committed to, to the people, but at the same time don't have any real, um, you know, um, deep feelings about it. So what, what would it look like if you had deep feelings about it? Um, I suppose I might cry or um, not be able to sleep or just uh, think about it all day, you know, um, or um, I don't know. So what do, you f what, do you feel anything when you think about it? Or you, you, ref or you remember the person or? Uh, well, I think I feel simply w what you said, you know, that I just um, understand their suffering and I wish, I wish it wasn't so. And mm -hmm. then I guess I also do everything I can to alleviate it and to, uh, or, you know, help them. But, and that's kind of the, uh, and, you know, during kind of set times, I'll, you know, either visit them or write them or think about them and what I could do for them. But then I'm not, you know, I'm not just... Um, you know, all day obsessed with it. You know, mm -hmm. it kind of has its, its time and its place. So why do you think you should be obsessed with it? Um, I don't know. I guess I kind of feel like that maybe is what compassion actually is. Hmm. I mean, maybe it's, it's, my definition isn't the best, but just in terms of having more, um, just more a sense of balance, just, just more, more punch attached to the whole, the whole thing. So do you feel love? Do you feel care? Do I, do I feel love and, and care? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think... I what think does love feel like? <sighs> I don't know. Because <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, I think love to me ties more into, maybe more into emotion again. And care, I think, is maybe more, um, is more just analytical. Um, what can I do for them? Do I, do I know a doctor or mm -hmm. if I bring them a meal or so if I visit So there's them? love on the one hand and care on the other hand, right? And there's a vast middle in between. So what does that middle feel like right there? Where care and love meet? Um, I guess it would almost to me feel like kind of an equanimity where I was kind of um, just more balanced Mm-hmm. But it feels like you're wishing that you were feeling more 
um, that there was more of, to use a psychological term, more affect in your being about this misfortune of someone else. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's, it would feel like it would be um, more, more authentic. I mean, I, I guess... Are you feeling inauthentic? Um, I feel that I am authentic, but I guess when I actually look, look at the, you know, when I kind of, kind of look at myself from, you know, as an outsider, I, I feel that maybe... So, can I, let me ask you, so, if you say you feel care, Definitely. do you have any idea what that feels like in your body? Um, well, for me, I think it's a, like a longing to, um, to make things better or, or as mm -hmm. good as I can or... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, that longing, you call it, right? What does that longing feel like in your body? Um, sometimes it's... Um, just kind of simply wishing and, and sometimes it's more you know um, analytical in terms of actually looking for okay. solutions so right now can you put your attention on your heart and your this whole area right here and tell me what they feel like um, kind of an uneasiness. Uh -huh. And what does uneasiness feel like? What are the actual physical sensations of uneasiness? Um, I mean, right now it feels more like sadness than I think it's Okay, so it's great. Felt. So what does sadness feel like in your um, belly? Um, well, just in my whole chest here, kind of a, kind of like a, just kind of a, a, a tightness or uh, like a, a fluttery, Beautiful, beautiful. So can you stay with that tightness and that fluttering and have a really um, an investigated, investigative attitude or a curiosity is an even better word, a curiosity about that feeling of tightness. What does that actually feel like? What is that, that tightness? What does it actually feel like? Is it heavy? Is it light? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it flowing? Is it stuck? Is it, what, what is that feeling like? It's definitely very heavy. It's heavy. Okay, and when you say heavy, what do you mean by that? What, what are you actually feeling? Um, kind of in my, face and throat and it's just like a just like a weighted a weighted kind of feeling mm -hmm. beautiful so what I'd like you to do is uh, is to pay attention in that way right because sometimes especially if there are feelings that are difficult that we don't want to feel we move up into our heads with a story right even and even if it's a sympathetic story or you know, there's nothing wrong with the story, but usually when we pay attention, you know, and that's the beauty of mindfulness, it really gives us a lot of information about what is going on in a holistic way. 
So we tend to ignore the feelings in the body, the signals that the body gives us. And so our, um, our experience or our understanding of what is actually happening becomes partial. It becomes, it's as if we're a house divided against itself. So that the feelings are over here and the body is over here and the story is over there. And we, we have no, it's very difficult for us to pull them all together so that they become whole. So what I might suggest, if you're up for it, is that you spend 15 minutes a day. Do you practice? Mm -hmm. how, how, how long do you practice every day? Uh, every day, I'd say um, between 15 and 20 minutes uh, okay. at the least. So if tomorrow, when you sit, pay attention. You know, you can start with the breath for just to settle yourself down. And then actually pay attention to what's happening just in your body. Because I suspect, I'm not sure, but I suspect that you, your, your prime way of uh, being in the world is through the mind, because we're Westerners and that's what we do. And a lot of the time we're not paying attention to this. And it's telling us so much. Mm -hmm. And it really begins to open up for us or um, allows us to discover what we're actually feeling. Because we've rationalized those feelings, we've not really allowed ourselves to feel them because sometimes they're really painful and they're difficult, just like we were saying before. So can you sit with, actually when you sit, bring a picture of one of these beings that you're that you love and that you care about and that you're you're being such a beautiful um, helper to bring them into your mind and really have a very very clear picture of who that person is and it's almost as if you can merge with them you can join with them and allow whatever wants to happen in your body and your heart and your mind to happen and pay attention to it. So pay very deliberate and intentional attention to how the body feels when you bring this person. So, and put them in your heart, really, you know, really embrace them and put them in your heart and feel whatever warmth and, and glow you can feel and maybe you can't feel any and that's okay too and it's not about judging yourself about whether you should feel this or you should feel that eh, no it's what do I actually feel and be willing to accept that and you can tiptoe into it you don't have to like if, if suddenly there are overwhelming feelings you can come back to the breath but don't do it to run away from those feelings. Incorporate those feelings into the breath so that you're feeling in a, in a universal and whole way rather than allowing the, um, the activity of the mind to become so predominant in your experience that it shouts everything else down. Right? So that's what I would okay. say. Thank you. And I'd love to hear sometime how that works out for you.
So that's all the time we have. Those are all the questions we have time for. So I'd like to do just a short reflection as we, as we close. Is for you to, um, as, you, as you close your eyes, is there someone in your life who is having a difficult time? Is there someone who has had a loss or is struggling economically or physically or emotionally or mentally? And really bring that person into your heart right now. And if you would like, you can even say their name out loud. That's fine. And really address your attention to this person. What does their face look like? How does it feel to actually bring them so close to you? What is the visceral feeling, not what you, th what you think about them or what you wish they would do or anything. Just what is the visceral feeling of this precious human being, this unique human being? And as, as uh, vivid an image as you can bring, bring that vivid image so that you see their face physically and you feel their presence. And we can bring uh, deep wishes for their well-being. And whatever the issue is that they're struggling with, if they're ill, have a deep wish in your heart. May you be healthy. And if you cannot be perfectly healthy, may you live with uh, your illness with as much grace as is possible. Or if they're struggling financially or they're in, not in a safe place to wish them safety, may you be very safe. And may your fortunes change. If they're suffering loss or they're grieving, may you be comforted. And if the struggle is overwhelming, may you be at ease. So there's a sincere wish in, your ver in all of your being for the well-being and the welfare of this precious, unique, human being. There will never be another person like them in this whole world. And stay with this being 
with an open heart and in complete comfort so that their troubles can be held in a wide space and peace and safety and love and happiness in whatever measure can be brought to their sadness or their difficulty. And can you widen the circle to include yourself in all of these wishes that you have wished for this human being? So may we together be safe and protected from all harm and danger. And may we together be happy and peaceful in whatever our circumstances. And may we together be healthy and strong in body and bear whatever vicissitudes, physical vicissitudes we have with deep grace. And may we live in complete ease, whatever our troubles, free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And may this friendliness, this kindness, spread to the whole world and include all beings equally without exception. So that our wish for safety, peace and happiness, health, well-being, ease and freedom are cast to all four quarters of the world and includes all beings without exception. And may through this uh, well-wishing, may, may this whole world find peace and the causes of peace to embrace us all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.